0: Welcome to Titanic Reaction. I'm Tony Mangus. Be aware. These are real stories. Well, most of them are. They will contain tales of alcohol, drugs, sex, extreme violence, and language Mary Whitehouse would not approve of. Take caution when listening.
1: We're back with part two of the interview with punks who became therapists. If you've ever wanted to turn the tables and be the one to ask your therapist questions, this episode is for you. We talk about what led them to becoming therapists, and they also share their thoughts about why mental health problems are so prevalent among punks, and many other things. I hope you have as much fun listening to this episode as we did making it.
0: And so will you give a summary of what therapy is to each of you? It's very misunderstood.
2: Oh, boy. You know, I've really thought about this question. I find it a little bit difficult to sum up only in that there are so many different approaches to therapy. You know, I I think when you, when you think of the word therapy, I mean, it can apply to, for instance, physical therapy, which is uh, a healing of the body. And there are things that someone else helps you with um, to heal, but they also give you work to do on your own to continue to strengthen, continue to heal. And I feel like my work is a lot like that um, in that, yes, our our one-on-one connection, um, me bringing some of my knowledge and experience to kind of help guide them is a critical component of it. But I also feel like um, a really big part of it is what they do on their own outside of our sessions.
0: It,
3: it,
2: it's hard to define because it comes in so many different packages but that's that's kind of what I feel like it is for me in terms of mental health therapy
3: part of what's helpful in therapy is insight you know like kind of connecting some dots and uncovering experiences as having informed what your beliefs are about yourself and about the world and kind of how you operate but then what I've kind of gotten more training in in the last Um, few years. And what I've been drawn to more is more of the somatic body connection. And it wasn't until really digging into that, that I noticed personal transformation from that work, like actually taking my own medicine of what I'm practicing with clients. Um, And actually it, it kind of started at the beginning of the pandemic. I had taken like an EMDR, the, you know, eye movement um, stuff. Uh, I thought that's what I wanted to do. Um, and I liked a lot more of like the resourcing part, like the part of like, find the place, you know, imagine a, a safe space or, you know, whatever. And then really kind of working with that and, and, and being in your body as you're, you know, if you're triggered to kind of find a safe space. And um, so I was like, oh, well, that I really like that stuff. And then I kind of started studying some of that more. And then Zoom started, you know, for my sessions, I had private practice. And then I also was working at the time for um, a college. And it actually was easier to do the somatic. Like, what do you feel in your body right now? And I mean, personally speaking, the pandemic hit and I fucking was losing my shit. Like, I didn't know what, what I mean, I lost identity pieces. I didn't know how to be a parent to two little kids that I had to see every moment of the day while also working and trying to take care of my people that I'm working with. And it was just, I mean, it was terrifying. It was uh, quite literally crippling for me and, um, my old tricks or whatever, my old therapy kind of skills were not really translating anymore. And I wasn't feeling them. And I was like, I don't want to go to work. I, I don't, I feel like a, an imposter or whatever I was having all these complexes. And so once I started to, to really check in, like what's happening in your body, you know, how are you feeling? Let's just connect on that level. Let's just sit here for a moment and either do some grounding techniques or whatever. And I was actually participating with them. Um, and then realizing like, oh, okay, this, this is, this feels like it's working for me. So anyway, I guess that's kind of more like my journey, but, um, what I think how I practice therapy is really about that mind body connection and the belief that we can all recover and heal. And there are some really great ways of doing that, that I, you know, practice myself and that I've found my own personal transformation through. So I don't know that was kind of a long one, but.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it's
4: good. I'll I'll give a short one. Um, I think it's healing through human connection. There's a lot of different ways of doing it, but when you get down to it, I think psychotherapy is healing through human connection.
5: Yep. At the risk of creating a false dichotomy, I think a lot about true self, false self. And for me, a lot of this is around helping people to connect to their true self to find those ways in which our essence has gotten uh, disorganized and um, creating a path for recovering our, our essence, bringing that forward. I think a lot about, uh, believe that the psyche is designed to be able to heal itself and that conditions in our technological civilization uh, agitate against that, but there is a way to recover that. And so it's, it's a lot for me about creating the right conditions so that that self-healing capacity, that uh, like Stan Groff talked about, the inner healing intelligence, you know, that that can actually come forward. So really trying to practice in a less directive way, a more collaborative way to create the right conditions for that healing to happen. And what does it mean to you to be a therapist? You know, I like to think of myself as a helper, I think more than a therapist therapist is like a very laden term. Um, And as Pete mentioned, there's so many different approaches to therapy, you know, that it feels a little bit tricky to step into that kind of terrain, you know, more, more so than like a uh, reifying a sort of hierarchical, you know, expert uh, patient dynamic, you know, where my client is the, passive recipient of my doing, um, you know, really like to try to create a different kind of environment where we can be more peers or sort of more eye to eye as I'm holding space for whatever process needs to unfold for that other person. But yeah, it, you know, just, I guess, in, in short, it just means showing up in a way to, you know, with a real commitment to holding space for somebody else to really put my needs uh, in the background. As I focus on, you know, the experience and the conditioning of somebody else, and you know, kind of walk alongside them as they're groping their way towards the light, you know, from whatever, uh, whatever has gotten in the way of their their full unfolding.
2: I do really emphasize with clients coming in that this is a collaborative process. This isn't, um, you know, what what they often refer to as the sage on the stage, you know, that you're just imparting wisdom to somebody that um, they're their own expert. Um, you know, my job in a way is to really get a good understanding of who they are, what their values are, um, what their goals are, what what is important to them, what what is not working in their lives right now, and then go from there to collaborate trial and error. I could drone on about the process, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's a huge element of, of my work with people.
1: Do you find that when people come, they don't expect it to be something that will involve work for them just more that they'll be able to come in and kind of get something off their chest without having to, you know, think about it when they leave?
2: Well, yeah, I will just say that sometimes there's huge value in that. Uh, coming back to punk you know you you think of this song by Poison Idea that really comes up for me a lot Uh Alan's on fire I will be heard you know and it's just this idea that like this is a person who has never really had somebody be fully present with them without being judged or without coming at them with um preconceptions and so for me uh, you know especially starting out as a, a brand new therapist I'm pretty new to the profession um, for me the one thing that I could really offer people was just uh, being present with them you know what they call in the biz uh, providing unconditional positive regard just like i'm I'm not I'm not judging you I'm here to be present and listen and just let you know like, I, i'm I'm hearing you you know, and a lot of people do just really need that. But um, yeah, I mean, some people don't want to do the work and I will tell you, you know, the work outside obsession. And I will tell you the people who do are the ones who often, you know, at least in the way that I do my work, uh, those are the ones that really make the most progress is when they're kind of like, wow, I need to make some changes. And, and the ones that are coming in, just kind of hoping to be fixed. Other people may be able to do that. I don't find that I'm able to do that with folks.
5: Yeah, I've said before that sometimes we can have this quite bizarre expectation that a person comes for this experience one hour per week, and that that is somehow going to utterly transform their thinking, their behavior, their feeling states. And it's like one 168th of a person's life, you know, that there's gonna be some magical thing that happens in that period of time that is the, I think it can definitely be a catalyst and open up opportunities for further exploration and integration. But it's, I don't think that the sessions themselves are what we should measure the success of our efforts on. You know, it should be what's actually happening in a person's life. You know, how are they noticing things being different? At the risk of taking up too much space. The other thing I might say is that, you know, for me, um, and this probably goes without saying, but maybe it's good to say it, you know, being well-adjusted in a sick society is not sanity. And so, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking about this effort as in some way also part of that dismantling, you know, that as we become more well, we become better able to see what's actually going on around us and hopefully then able to take more effective steps towards transforming the world and who knows, possibly averting ecological catastrophe and starting to treat each other with mutuality and respect and, you know, uh, uh, dismantle these systemic inequalities that, you know, are just so horrifying to watch.
3: I think also just the power of realizing that you have choice, more choice than you think you have. Um, Even, you know, talking to clients like about feelings that they're having and that they don't have to chase the feelings. Like just because you feel a feeling doesn't mean that that's true or, you know, that everything you have wrapped around that is truth, right? That you have a moment to actually kind of slow down and to really kind of experience what it is kind of a little bit from a lens, like just a little bit. It's kind of like talking about the, you know, the true self or the you know, this unshakable spirit, I think that all of us have, it's helping clients feel, have a connection to that. And if in the one hour session that I have, if I, if they can tap in just for like seconds at a time, right. And just then in their own time, they can accrue more seconds and more seconds. And and eventually that, that part of them can really grow and flourish. And that and that, I think, is, is when you feel whole, is when you feel you know, wholeness and that you do have choice and kind of how you approach others in your life, how you see yourself, the thoughts that you have about yourself, whether or not you want to keep doing it.
4: I don't think I have a whole lot to add on top of what other people have said. I, I really want to re- reiterate what said about unconditional positive regard. I think, cause, cause I use different approaches uh, with different people. So, you know, I can't get too much into technique for me, but I, I think that that's something that I, I hold with everyone that I work with um, is that unconditional positive regard. And, and I've noticed that one of the things that really changes, you know, I, I, I used to be a really judgmental person and Same. doing therapy has been amazing for allowing me to to be with people and not be judgmental um but i think another important part about it for me is always doing my own work um you know i think doing this work is a is a big responsibility and and we have to yeah. to be working on ourselves uh to be there for the people that we're we're trying to support in their journey
0: elizabeth had to go but the other 3 are going to carry on so yeah, what are some other misconceptions that people have about therapy?
2: Well, you know what, I think the main one that I hear it's not a particularly misconception, it's just I I tried therapy, I went one time, it wasn't for me. And this is if I can I would almost say that this is probably the most important thing that I want to impart to the listeners is that not every therapist is for every client. And I tell my clients that the first, our first session, I say, you know what, if this doesn't feel like a good fit, I I try to encourage them to come back at least a second time because there's a lot of nerves for people and they may, uh, sort of attribute their nerves to something that's happening in the room with me. But, um, you know, I, I, I encourage people to come back at least a second time. And then after that, decide whether it feels like a good fit or not. Because I think that so many people get turned off from therapy because they work with somebody who is not a good fit. And just to be super real, there's a lot of bad therapists out there. I, I mean, I, I know a lot of therapists that I would not personally go to. Um, so, you really need to keep that in mind. If you have some idea that, Oh yeah, I went one time and it's not for me. There's a lot of different types of therapy. There's a lot of different types of therapists. And you know, if you feel like you're struggling, if you feel like you need some outside um, resource, some outside help, please try it again. Maybe get a talk to a friend, see who they go to. You know, I, I remember a lot of my friends uh, back in Portland before I moved away were going to the same person because they had all heard word of mouth. Yeah. And that person was kind of punk adjacent. And, uh, you know, that probably felt comfortable of them. Um, a lot of people won't get your lifestyle. And it's probably helpful if if they do have some sort of awareness of, you know, the counterculture. Um You know, because for a lot of us, that is an important part of our identity. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily misconception. I guess I guess it kind of is. It's it. Yeah. Just the idea that all therapy is the same and all therapists are the same. That's just very much not true.
0: Yeah. I'm just trying to just get some information out there. So for people who eventually become willing to try. We'll actually stick it out for a few times.
4: I I, I think one uh on a sim related to that I think an important misconception about therapy is uh, sometimes that you're going to go and at the end of your session you're going to feel much better than you went in, uh, and and oftentimes you can expect to feel worse at the end of the session. The growth <laughs> is going to take time, but you're you know if you're getting into some Absolutely. some difficult shit. You're not going to feel like, I mean, yes, you can, you can get something off your chest and feel an immediate lift, but oftentimes, you know, you can expect it to, to take a while. Um, and I think sometimes people go with that expectation and they feel bad at the end and they're like, well, I'm not going to do that again. This is supposed to make me feel better. What's the point?
2: And can I just interject real quick? Because I think this is an important point, at least for the work that I do, um, I'm not expecting my clients to just walk in and tell me about the most horrible fucking thing that's ever happened to them. Like there's a lot of stuff that we can do uh, in therapy that where you never really touch on that and healing trauma. um, Well, it's, it's important, but I, I want people to be able to do that on their own time and, and, You know, I think the only client that only came once and never came back uh, for me, I think we just got into stuff too quick, too soon, too much. And it was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe that just happened. I'm never doing that again. That was the feeling I got. And so I just want to make that clear that you don't have to tell the therapist about all the stuff, you know, you can still get something out of it without that.
4: I I think a similar misconception sometimes people think they're supposed to be able to tell their therapist everything and anything and like people can have secrets it's okay
0: well I will tell you the nine months that I did in the state lockup treatment center I was told that I was not allowed to have secrets
1: that doesn't sound very helpful I'm just gonna say
0: Uh, prison yeah not very helpful Right. No, it was a treatment center. No, I mean, I spent like six hours a day in group therapy, but they told me that that wasn't, so for people like me who have heard the opposite, explain why that is. It,
4: it, it, at its core, it's our, it's our basic human right to privacy. Um, I think it's also an important thing. Like, I mean, people can go to therapy for a lot of different reasons and get different things out of it. And okay. you, I mean, <clears throat> in fact, it would be impossible to tell every thought, every, you know, every secret. So some things you just don't need to talk about. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think that the, it's important for people to have a sense of what it is that they're hoping to get out of it, um, to kind of keep things moving in, in a particular direction sometimes. I mean, n- not always. Um, but I think the other thing too, well, it, it, in a similar topic, you know, ideally, someone is going to have trust for their therapist, but you're also going to, at some point have met your therapist for the first time and trusting someone that you've never met before. Absolutely. Doesn't make a a whole lot of sense. So I think that, you know, allowing the therapeutic relationship to develop and allowing that trust to develop and then people feeling comfortable of sharing parts of themselves when they are comfortable can be healing making people feel like they have to share vulnerable parts of themselves when they're not ready
0: to can be damaging. Yeah, absolutely. And in the wrong situation. Yeah. yeah. yeah or with the sounds-
4: wrong person, you know, as Pete said, there's, there's some bad therapists or people who aren't a good fit
5: and, and that can, can cause more wounds when you feel coerced. Yeah. That sounds like a bit more of a 12 step kind of thing than anything that might classically be uh Held by uh, therapists, you know, counselors, okay, psychotherapists, because there, there often does. Need yeah, to it's see. important for me to know this. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think if you ask most psychotherapists, they would say that we need to earn a client's trust. You know, that as as we come into relationship with uh, somebody, you know, who needs our help, they're likely coming from, you know, some history of not being accurately reflected, not being seen, um, and, you know, there's often a, a way in which people are quite protected, and there is often weeks, months, or years-long journey of building that rapport and that sense of trust, so, you know, I, I certainly don't press on anybody to disclose, you know, anything before it's, it's the right time, and do also want to say, you know, um, as, as, to, uh, as to Pete's point about, you know, goodness of fit is sometimes how we'll talk about it in the biz. And, you know, I, I, as a kid, I was forced to go to therapy. And, you know, I wonder if, you know, as, as, as punks, many of us would have gone through something like this, you know, where we were forced into an interaction with this psychiatric edifice, And, you know, labeled with all of these, you know, uh, oppositional defiant disorder, you know, whatever, whatever we were said to suffer from. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, uh, and, you know, those experiences for me were really damaging. And I was very reticent to, uh, in any way, prop up, you know, this system that had actually, like, been part of what wounded me, you know, as a, in in my process of becoming um and so just to just to affirm that there really are you know people out there that get it and they might be more difficult to find i don't know but i i've been surprised at how many i i use this term freaks i hope it doesn't land as pejorative for anybody but there's a lot of freaks out there that are getting licensed you know and that are are offering services you know and so definitely you know Do do that search, you know. Do that. Go on that quest that that Pete talked about of you know talking to folks, seeing seeing you know who's good and and finding that person that can really hold space for you to you know feel safe enough to start to take those steps that you need to take. I guess another misconception that I might say is that you have to wait until like you're really fucked up to go to therapy. You know, you you're supposed to have some kind of mental health disorder, or you're supposed to like have some really terrible thing going on in your mind before you actually reach out and get help. You know, I, I work with a lot of people who are high functioning, love their lives in a certain sense, but know that there's some piece that they're not quite getting to, you know, that there's like some way that they could be more fully alive. Uh, and, you know, that we'll, we'll get to do that work uh, without necessarily approaching it from this perspective of like, okay, there's this something wrong with you and we have to go on and we have to fix that treat this as some sort of medicalized situation, you know?
0: What can people accomplish through therapy?
5: That, that is a tough
4: question because I think there's so much, um, you know, I think like starting Mm -hmm. from the simple, I I, I think people can, uh, be experiencing an acute crisis in their life. Something has happened that they're having a hard time coping with like a global pandemic that's isolated you at home. (laughs) Um, And, you know, a a relatively short uh, course of some kind of therapeutic relationship can kind of help get out uh, from the worst of it and develop some coping tools uh, that you're going to, you know, take with you and continue practicing on your own, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, I think, you know, like really significant transformation of one's life. Is possible. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of theme of working with with trauma uh, amongst us. And, and I think kind of moving from a place of having seen one as oneself as being a victim and, and maybe even having experienced trauma because of, of a inherent fault in one's being um, in developing the, the recognition that, that trauma is something that can happen to anyone and it can be healed from and, and you can be a whole person after that. Um, it's a big part of the work that I do with people.
1: I was wondering, you know, you mentioned your own experiences with trauma earlier, and I'm not sure if this is relatable to all of you, but I've always wondered um, if you have issues like that, you know, a lot of the way that manifests can be avoidance, you know, trying to stay away from triggers and things, but how do you separate that from other people's stories, like the content of what you hear? Like, how do you stay, you know, healthy in that way and also, do you, do you spend most of your own personal sessions with your therapist talking about your clients, <laughs> um, in order to kind of help you process that? Uh,
4: so, so that's, a, that's a really, uh, a personal question. Not, not in a bad way. I, I what I mean is I think that you're going to get a lot of different answers. Um, I don't spend a lot of time talking to my therapist about my clients. Um, i I think it probably has a lot to do with my own healing journey prior to doing the work, compounded with my healing journey as part of doing the work. Uh, in particular when I was trained in EMDR, I, I worked on on a lot of my trauma history. Um, and I think that one of the things that uh, I, I think some some of us just are, you know and maybe it's because, we have enough uh, enough experience with it. We can stay grounded uh, when we're hearing about other people's traumas. Which isn't to say that it's it's not difficult. Um, but you know, I, I am able to recognize that other people's traumas uh, are are not mine. Having said that, I don't work with kids. I don't know that I could keep that separation.
1: Yeah. So just setting those kinds of boundaries for yourself is is a part of it. Is a part of what. Uh, makes you able to continue doing the work
2: yeah you know I, i i do think that being able to process some of the stuff in some way with someone else um not necessarily your own therapist but um you know for me i'm still working toward licensure so being able to talk through some things with my clinical supervisor can be really helpful doing um you know, group consultation is what they call it with, uh, other therapists. You know, I work in an agency where we can, you know, currently it's all over zoom, but we can just get on there and say like, Hey, I had this come up. I could really use some feedback. Not really sure, um, which way to go with this or yeah. So that's, that's one part of the answer. Um, and then the other part is that sometimes it's okay to feel Feelings about clients um, and what they've gone through, and, and in some ways, I think that there's is important to be able to do that because if you're just like stone faced while somebody's telling you something really hard, they're gonna. It, it's that going back to feeling heard, feeling seen. If they're just feeling like you're putting up a wall while they're bringing up their trauma, they're not gonna trust you, and so you have to be open to a certain degree to feeling those feelings and at the end of the work day going, okay, that's what I did today. Now I'm moving on with the rest of my life with the rest of my day. And um, yeah, a lot of people have different sort of rituals on how they can close out their work day. Um, You know, I, I don't have a particular one. I, I take a bike ride. On my i i bike commute and man that 10 minutes of uh, i luckily i work uh really close to home but uh yeah that 10 minutes on my bike is It sounds
4: like a very specific ritual
2: it's healing it is it's 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 a way to let it go you know if i get in the car turn on music or npr or whatever um that might still be there with me when i get home those those things and and it's not to say like oh it's just magic occasionally i do come home and i'm like man that was a fucked up day you know it it does happen but i don't know i i think you have to figure out your way of of doing that to continue to do the work so there's a lot of different approaches to it um i guess is (laughs) is the short answer spot's given a thumbs up so i assume <laughs> okay. I hope, okay I, I hope that was an okay
1: question. It's a great question. I hope that was okay. I I don't know when you said it was personal. I just was like, oh no, I didn't want to yeah. get in no, there. It, but much.
4: personal okay. is okay. But also, I meant like my answer isn't necessarily individual to anyone else. Right.
5: Yeah,
1: okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure.
5: No, I thought uh, it was a great question. You know, personally, I love it. And uh I was just thinking about you know, Beat, you were talking about when we first met, and how part of your memory was like we went really deep, really fast. Yeah. Um, and like, there's something about this whole enterprise that is actually totally nourishing for me. Like, I just love it when, you know, you're, uh, getting real with people, you know, it's like, and, and stuff comes out that's like really hard to hear and hard to be with, but it's almost like the payoff, uh, is enough, uh, in that authenticity and that intimacy that it's. So it's worth it in a way. I totally agree.
2: Yeah. I think there's, you recognize that people had to process that people had to feel that to move forward. It's all part of the process, the journey. And so I guess knowing that the the client is healing, uh, maybe, yeah, maybe it, it it softens it or it, you know, it makes you want to keep hearing their stories.
4: You know, I, I had a when I first started learning trauma work, uh, I had a a, a mentor who uh, I had asked the question after an intense session of like, how is this work sustainable? And she said, it works for us too. And when you're when you witness someone's journey of healing, um, it can feel pretty amazing for us. And and it, it's you know, it it's not like we're just hearing people's trauma stories and then just sitting with it. We're hearing people's trauma stories and then helping them heal from it. Um, and, and that's, I feel blessed and honored to witness and participate in that
1: with people. So it's almost like um, you're saying as you work through it with your client, you're also working through it yourself. Like you're both kind of working through it together.
4: Yeah, in, in a way, but also some of it is, is you know, like, I think at a, a core, one of the challenges, and it, you had mentioned avoidance, part of the reason that people become avoidant with traumas is our nervous system's desire to protect from that trauma happening again. But talking about it, put, you know, bringing it up is not the same as it happening again uh, and, you know, being able to to kind of recognize that it is something that we can talk about or, and not always talk about, I mean, we do use other methods. Uh, Elizabeth was talking about somatic approaches and, you know, felt experiences in the body. And, um, so she was talking about a little bit about being present as she was encouraging other people to do it. So, so that kind of thing is, is definitely uh, a part of it.
0: You kind of touched on it earlier, but what are some of the shitty parts people can expect from therapy before they start to improve?
2: It is kind of what I believe Pigpen mentioned, the idea that sometimes you'll feel worse, but most of my clients just seem to at least initially feel like, oh my God, somebody just listened to me with their whole mind and and heart or whatever, uh, and and didn't judge me and didn't try to minimize my feelings, um, you know. And so I would say that initially, for a lot of people, unless it is too much too soon, like I mentioned, um, that there isn't a lot of downside, you know, it's, it's usually a relief, like, oh, wow, I got in the door, you know, I made the appointment, I filled out all the paperwork, and I'm finally here doing this. Um, So, but yeah, I mean, obviously, there are setbacks. Um, You, uh, you spoke to it earlier, Pete, I think
4: that for a lot of people, the hardest part is the realization of like, oh, this person isn't going to just like, talk to me and make everything better. I have to make changes in my life. Like I have to confront some, some shit that I've been avoiding dealing with and nothing's going to happen. If I don't do some, you know, make some changes, lots of ways of doing it, but on some level you have to make some changes and that's hard.
2: Yeah. And and that, yeah, I will say that is where a lot of people get stuck. Like the initial thing of, um, you know, being heard is great, but then people stop they stop making progress when they expect that that's all there is to it. And, you know, you, you have to kind of coax them sometimes like, all right, let's assess what's going on in your life. What, what changes haven't been made, what changes need to be made. And, you know, a lot of times people don't want to make them.
0: Just for me getting sober. Like I know a lot of the changes, like actually physically hurt.
5: Sure. Sure. Sometimes there can be this somewhat dizzying realization that one's ego identity has actually been a protective mechanism that has allowed us not to feel certain kinds of pain. And so as one is beginning to excavate and uh, process, integrate, experience, we really do start to change. I guess I'll just say, I really discovered in myself that there was kind of like a whole different person in there that I didn't really know existed. And it's like, sometimes it's just a whole lot of growing pains, you know, where it's like, kind of adjusting to like, how do I make room for the expression of this aspect of myself that um never felt safe before to like come forward and just be seen in the world and uh it's it's a big you know it can be a really big stretch I mean it's a it's a huge ask I think why do you think people in punk who I mean I think gravitate
0: towards that because they're pretty damaged why do you think they're so resistant to therapy
4: you know, when I, I remember talking to another friend of mine uh, a number of years ago who we had kind of got into doing mental health work together. And one of the things that we talked about is, again, we, we were agreeing with that idea that so much of us end up getting into punk because we're fucked up. Um, but there's sometimes a little bit of a divide that, that some of us are kind of seeking that out because we want to we want to change that. We want to like we want to not be fucked up. We want to heal. Uh but I think that there's always been a more nihilistic side of the punk scene that like really wants to revel in being fucked up and it becomes it like such a I part of the that. identity of like like why would I why would I get better? Like no, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be more fucked up. Um So obviously people that are gravitating towards that side aren't, aren't really looking for, for a healing journey, but I, you know, I think spot spoke to it a little bit too. We, we have, I mean, you know, you mentioned your drug treatment experience, you know, the, I think so much of the dominant paradigm of the mental health system in this country is damaging. And, you know, we tell each other like, Oh yeah, you know, I, I went to treatment and I had this therapist that, was a total asshole and made me do this, and so we start hearing from each other that that's not a place that that we're going to be accepted and encouraged to heal. We're going to, you know, have people trying to make us straight, but it's not necessarily the case.
1: I think that dovetails into the question um, about substance abuse and alcohol abuse in punk and why any of you might think that that's so prevalent within the culture, and maybe that ties into kind of people seeking self-destruction and finding one another. But I'm curious if you could speak to that and, you know, why you think it's so prevalent and also why you think it's so hard for people to seek treatment.
2: I mean, for me, alcohol was, and probably, although I actually don't drink that much anymore, but um, maybe still is, but uh, it's it's the most wonderful short-term coping mechanism that I've ever come across. I know some of us that have gone down the road with, um, Opiates, And, you know, I haven't necessarily, but um, I hear that's an amazing coping mechanism as well. You know, if, if we assume that a lot of people with um, histories of trauma of maybe it's not even, you know, capital T trauma, but just, we came from fucked up situations, whether it's poverty, whether it's just, you know, parents that weren't necessarily Entirely available to us Emotionally, whatever
4: Capitalism?
2: Well, look We haven't even gotten into that I mean, that's a huge component of what I do is help People navigate living In, you know uh, Late stage capitalism In the United States Uh, But yeah, I mean So whatever it is that you need to Cope with, um, drugs and alcohol Are a wonderful short term Solution for that and a horrible long-term solution but um you know you know what's a really good way to not remember that it's a good long-term solution is to take more drugs and drink more alcohol um so look i mean short term i I also think we have to
4: look at the fact that in you know that a significant part of the punk rock canon if you will totally uh romanticizes getting wasted. Of course. You know, we, course. we probably couldn't even catalog the number of songs that are are about getting fucked up.
2: And it can be really fun. And when you're a teenager, man, like what yeah, you know, anything that's already fun just becomes so much more fun when you're and, and especially angry. if you're being told you shouldn't do it. Of course. It's like, oh I can handle it.
5: And you know, part of punk, I think, is extremism. Like, you know, that's kind of been what I've noticed is like, that's kind of been my approach to life. Everything I do, I do it 110%. You know, and so like, it was for sure punk, uh, but you know, substances as well. It's like, let's do the really extreme shit. Like, let's figure out, you know, how to get the most out there. And, uh, and yeah, it really, you know, absolutely was kind of part of part of the cultural mode. To to get back for a second to this question about why might there be resistance to therapy, I also wanted to name that uh, I've worked with a lot of people who are artists and they have this, this fear, this really significant fear, sometimes articulated, sometimes not, that if they lose contact with their neurosis, they're gonna lose contact with their creativity. And it sometimes requires some real conversation around the discovery that I made the discovery that I've seen a lot of other people make that the the wellspring of your creativity absolutely does not dry up when you become more healthy. In fact, you just often develop more range and you know your, your art becomes more resonant for more folks and can be- I, I think yeah. that comes a lot from people who have
4: uh, relied on psychopharmacology to deal with the issues which
5: can have an impact
4: on creativity.
5: Right. That's true. Yeah. That dulling, that but I also wanted to name, you know, uh, uh, as we're talking about drugs an, a really significant interest area of mine lately has been psychedelic assisted therapy, you know, Same. and um,
3: yeah. Done interesting.
5: It. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? So like <laughs> there's, um, there's this, there's this like, uh, you know, now new Vista, I think that's opening up or rather than, you know, the sort of psychiatric like you know here's the problem and you know just give somebody a pill and try to dull everything down you know people are instead working with these medicines that catalyze experiences you know that can be incredibly transformative so i think there's like it's it's a really interesting moment in the field as i'm seeing more and more kind of openness to that and and curiosity about where that might go to
4: yeah I you mean, mentioned
5: stan groff i was like Ooh. I have some yeah. questions now <laughs> yeah yeah we should we should talk
0: well even even aa even with one of the founders of aa he tried B- to bill awesome bill to was like
5: big into that yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah he wanted uh he wanted lsd therapy to be part of the aa approach that's right and the board. yeah he like, just could they're like <laughs>
4: <laughs> this mystic off
2: yeah yeah that's a no-go buddy but man they should have let him just, can you imagine where we'd be yeah well
0: i mean he did try he just didn't yeah. work
2: well nixon still would have shut it down not
0: enough <laughs> yeah true. true
2: first time i did acid i i watched um some really horrible late night tv And I was like Mike TV, um, you know, from Willy Wonka or whatever. Before that, I was really addicted to television and watching that on LSD just completely changed everything for me that opened up. I was like, wow, okay, the manipulation, this is just so incredibly vapid. And it really pushed me more toward like, I want to spend my time creating and and really distancing myself from whatever this world of literally like fantasy Island in the love boat or whatever the hell I was watching, you know, like whatever that world is, I want nothing to do with that. And, uh, you know, I, I really feel like, um, that was my first sort of psychedelic assisted, uh, therapy, even if, um, to be clear, um, true psychedelic assisted therapy means that somebody is there assisting you. Um, not just that you're eating shrooms or acid on your own and like kind of seeing what happens. Um, Her- Hervé
5: Veliches is not your guide. <laughs> he was not. <laughs> Mister Rourke was not my guy.
2: Yeah,
4: I, I'm going back to, to Spike's question. You know, I think I remember being actually I remember uh, the first time I saw Minor Threats uh, out out of step in reading the lyric sheet and being very confused. Yeah, because you know i'd been into punk for you know maybe a few months at that time and i was like i'm confused because i thought that punk and getting wasted were like one in the same thing and i think i'm not alone in that a lot of people have just kind of like when when they're finding their path into punk there's just an assumption that that you know along with looking weird is getting fucked up
1: absolutely
0: yeah for any positive healthy outlets
2: of course I mean you know you can come back to thinking about rudimentary p and Nick Blinko I mean it was spot that I think turned me on to P&I. Uh, basically I can pretty much remember the moment and I was an immediate convert as well I mean we we hung out all the time. So it was literally like, he went up to Portland one weekend to hang out with somebody at somebody's house. They put on death church. And then he came back home and was like, our band is going to sound like rudimentary Peni now, basically. (laughs) And I was like, okay. And then I listened to it and was like, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Let's do that. But, um, you know, you think about Nick Blinko's experience of therapy and doing primal scream therapy, right? Like that's the name of his book is primal scream. And, um, I mean, I have mostly been the bass player in bands, but I've sung uh, in some punk bands too. And that is an extremely cathartic experience. Like if you do a half hour set of screaming your fucking head off on a stage in front of a bunch of people who are actually feeling something from it, you will feel different. It is therapeutic. There's absolute value in in that. I mean, there's obviously value in Collaboration with people, being in punk bands. There's value in having community. I mean, and I cannot understate that. And this is something I could go on and on about. And I think the pandemic has with so many of us being cut off from community. I mean, you kind of talked about that yourself, Tony. Your reason for kind of wanting to do this podcast is connect with other people. So yeah, I mean, there is true value in being part of the punk community, being part of this sort of tribe, you know, man, I mean.
4: No, get... Not to mention, you know, you're, you're focusing a little bit on music, but there's, you know, the zines, the leather work, the, you know. In terms of creativity. You have to do speed in to go with leather work, so. I, I, hey, when I made you that 4 road belt, I was not doing speed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fuck, I wish I still had it.
4: There's the, the body of like photography that's been co- collected uh, around punk rock over the years. And I, I have some friends here that are amazing painters that are, you know, really influenced by punk. So, I mean, there's, you know, maybe some, of, some people might not think of those things as being inherently punk, but I think all of the creativity and art that has sprung out of mu- punk separate from the music, it, you know, it's, it's undeniable but I think also that just a lot of
2: creativity and thinking.
0: A lot of people, including me, take it for granted. So I, why I wanted people's opinions on it, even if it seems really basic.
2: I mean, I'm sure most people, when they get in a mosh pit or or pogoing with their friends or whatever, aren't thinking like, this is therapy, but um, <laughs> there's catharsis in that. <laughs> My God, of course. Yeah, th- these are people who are all coming to it because they need an outlet um, for the feelings that they have. I used to say that, you know, going back to playing in bands, I used to say that I would lose my mind if I didn't have a band. And I feel like there were points in my life where I wasn't playing music, and I feel like I did somewhat lose my mind. Like, luckily, over the years, I've developed coping mechanisms. And honestly, going to pursue my education in in social work, um, I learned a ton of coping mechanisms. I learned a lot about myself, and that really helped me... You know, not necessarily rely fully on that expression of being in bands and uh, you know just getting loud. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's real value in it.
4: I I don't do art therapy, but I I work really closely with some art therapists. And one of the misconceptions that they often correct is that doing art therapy, the the purpose is not necessarily to make. Art that you're going to put on the wall it is a way of expression and you know people who are nervous and are like oh i'm you know i'm not an artist it's like well you don't need to be an artist to to do art therapy and heal from it and you know going especially back to the early days of punk when there was very much this idea of like you know you don't have to play an instrument to be in a punk band like you know you can have a creative outlet and no talent you know, I think that's, that's <laughs> less true. I think most punk musicians are much better musicians now, but I think in the early days that that was an inherent part of it. It was like creative expression, talent not
5: required.
1: Sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, totally fine. Okay, I was going
5: to make it's... a random comment that it actually won't contribute to our dialogue. So <laughs> will it be funny? <laughs> I, I kind of want to hear it. <laughs> yeah, is it funny? Go ahead. I don't know. I was just thinking about that music thing, and I was remembering the first time that I heard Flipper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just like and the sandpaper LP. <laughs> it's just not even, not even trying, you no. know, to to <laughs> no pretense. But it was so compelling, you know, so like engaging.
1: i was gonna um, say, I think Pete sort of touched on it a couple of times, but I was hoping maybe. Uh, one of you could explain to the listeners the difference between being a licensed clinical social worker therapist and being a therapist without that additional title.
5: State, I mean the, the, state the, oversight.
4: Yeah. It, it's basically state oversight. Um, yeah. I was a little, I was actually kind of looking into my, my uh, dad lives in England. Um, and at one point I was concerned about his health and just kind of like looking at could, could I, would I be able to work in England? And I made the mistake of like doing searches on like licensed clinical social workers doing therapy in England and couldn't find anything. And I was like, Oh, I guess I can't do it. And I later realized, no, I was looking wrong because they don't have licensure in England. Uh, it, it's very much an American and ca- Canadian, like way of controlling things. I mean, the, 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 argument is it is a consumer protection. Um, but I think it's often been a way of keeping people who, uh, are relying on it for a livelihood to not have too much uh, competition under the auspices of you know protecting the consumer, but uh, basically you have to have gone through a certain amount of experience and supervision after your education, and then usually take a, a test that's not a very accurate assessment of your um, clinical skills, um, but you know has good multiple choice questions for.
5: And uh, and
4: and then you become licensed.
5: And there's there's different kinds of licensure that reflect each of them has an educational requirement, and so they will be different uh, for licensed clinical social workers, marriage and family therapists, and professional counselors. You know, license, all of those uh, licensed professions. Uh, you have to have a master's level degree. And often those programs will focus in slightly different ways, you know, like all of them give you a good grounding and how to sit with people and be supportive. And then, you know, social workers have additional training and kind of how to do social work, you know, how to get people, get people's lives back on track. And, uh, and then counselors are, you know, more sort of generalized, uh, Uh, psychotherapy providers and then marriage and family therapists get a little bit of additional focus on working with families and couples but any of those professions you know might refer to themselves as a psychotherapist
0: and chelsea when she's not producing this podcast she works with children of trauma she wondered past trauma could make punk attractive
4: yep (laughs) Uh (laughs) uh-huh sure did (laughs) Yeah, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think if I know any punks that didn't have past trauma.
3: Yeah, I think you guys really did touch a lot on that. But I just wondered about that, the way our brains get uh, kind of hooked on adrenaline and excitement and extremeness, starting as little, little people.
5: I think this, this other theme that's been coming through a lot, uh, community, might also speak to what's sometimes referred to as attachment trauma you know, that if our, if we experience, you know, caregiver failure or, you know, developmental wounding, even if our parents aren't abusive or neglectful, but are, there's simply a pattern uh, of not getting our needs met, you know, that might incline us towards a uh, an attachment style or strategy that gets us into this kind of um, more intensive, I mean, we hung out, like, Every day, like as soon as school was done, we hung out until bedtime pretty much, you know, it's like, oh yeah. Uh,
2: and it was and, like, which, whose house are we staying at tonight?
5: Right. I know. I think about that now, how generous our, our parents were to like, let these other ragamuffins stay over all the time and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, you know, it's, um, you know, or our parents collect- kicked us out. So we had to go stay with other people. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's that. <laughs> the uh, collective house. Or you were running the-
2: away. <laughs> I just want to interject and and say, yeah, speaking of attachment, I mean, there are definitely different ideas about ADD, ADHD, where those things come from. But most of what I've read, what I've learned about ADD and ADHD um, is that there's a pretty significant component tied to um, early childhood attachment issues even, um, you know, in utero stress and, um, you know, Tony, actually on a couple of different your episodes, you've had a couple of different guests mention ADD, ADHD. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that is super prevalent in punk. And so short, fast songs, I mean, just <laughs> in that sense, it's like. You know, we're not, we're not gonna listen to, um, you know, 15 minutes. Godspeed, uh, you of black song. emperor. Yeah. Well, maybe we are now, but, uh, but yeah, as, as a young punk, I mean, listening to some Pink Floyd 15 minute song. No, it's like, I need it fast, loud, overstimulating, um, you know, and yeah, over I
0: mean, before I get bored.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a. ADD, ADHD is a fascinating subject. And, you know, when I heard a couple of people mention it in your pod, I was just like, Oh my God, we got to talk about that because that does feel like a lot of punks have it. So yeah. Is there, is there draw for people with ADHD, ADD to um, is a punk appealing to those folks? Um, I would say probably. And and a lot of those people have that early childhood trauma, even if it's not like, you know, capital T, PTSD type trauma. If anybody wants to just completely blow my theory out of the water, I'm, I, nope. I can handle it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Not going to do it. <laughs> no, I mean, it seems to make sense. Just judging from all the people that I've hung out with.
2: Sure. And, 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 you know, a lot of people with, ADD ADHD are are inclined to self medicate, which would come back to the um, you know to the drugs and alcohol issue yeah. for sure.
1: Thank you all for being so patient and for talking with us.
2: Yeah. Oh my God, super fun! Awesome, my I, pleasure. I love, I love having these conversations. I love seeing all your faces too. It's been way too long. Yeah.
0: Did you decide what song you want to do last?
2: Nowhere is is my other band dispossessed. It was a song I I wrote about um, feeling my soul drained from working at a tile factory, and uh, you know, for me that just tied in <laughs> so so cleanly to my work as uh, as a clinical uh, social worker in that. Like I said, a lot of what I'm doing is helping people navigating the current era of capitalism in America. That was Dispossessed. Um, yeah, it was Diane from Harem Scarum, Mark from The Estranged, and Molly from uh, The Curse and, and Pimp Slap and me. But yeah, I wrote that song when I was 21. I didn't end up recording it till I was... 31 and i don't know it, it it doesn't really have anything to do with mental health other than just feeling like other than what, everything other than what is mental health? <laughs> what is this life and it doesn't feel right it doesn't fit it doesn't feel sustainable yeah you know and and guess that, what That it's, seems apropos yeah it's not yeah. sustainable but therapy can help